Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. General Electric decides to break up into three companies, marking what many consider to be the end of an American industrial icon founded by Thomas Edison in 1892. The worst inflation in 30 years, rising COVID rates in Europe as the Netherlands locks down for a fourth wave as cases increase in the United States, more earnings uh, that highlight supply chain problems and market demand for another Boeing jetliner to compete compete against Airbus's successful A321neo. To date, the COVID pandemic has killed some 760,000 Americans and 5.1 million worldwide. Joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent London equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abelafia of the Teal Group Consultancy right here in Washington, D.C. Everybody, thanks so much for joining us. A great beard, Bago. Yeah, always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you very much. Happy podcast day, Vago. Thank you. Yes, yes, indeed. And we're managing uh, to do this uh, with uh, several of you on the move as well. So we appreciate that uh, very, very much. Uh, and before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors uh, our coverage of strategy. Ron, uh, start us off as you always do, right? Rising inflation, rising COVID rates, uh, more earnings that uh, highlight supply chain issues. And then the big bo- blockbuster news of the week, obviously, the General Electric uh, break up, you know, sort of, you know, and then and then adding to that, right? Uh, the chair, chairman of the Senate uh, Armed Services Committee, Jack Reed, uh, the Democrat from Rhode Island, not one to be alarmist about anything, uh, expressing concerns about further uh, defense industrial cooperation and and certainly concerns uh, about uh, competitiveness. So, talk to us about what's driving, you know, and what's been driving investors this week on the street. Yeah, I think there was a couple things. I mean, in the industrial world, you know, the GE news was you know, pretty tectonic, right? Uh, I don't think it was wholly unexpected uh, from those that you know, follow GE pretty closely. Um, and to be clear, I, I'm not the GE analyst, but I don't think it was that big a surprise. Um, just a couple of you know, quick commentary about it. It's going to take time for it to play out, so on and so forth. But you know, that was that was big news in the industrial world. And then uh, inflation, you know, inflation news was all over. And it was, uh, as you know, I mean, inflation rates were uh, as high as they've been in, I guess, 30 years. Uh, made, you know, front, front headlines on most of the major uh, world news outlets. Uh, and that caused a lot of volatility in the markets this week. So we saw uh, with the GE breakup, the inflation news, um, just, just a lot of volatility, right? So it was a very volatile week. I mean, pretty much all the big names uh, have already reported, right? I mean, all of them reported supply chain uh, challenges, right? I mean, L3 Harris talked about semiconductors. Um, We've talked about labor uh, issues uh, as well uh, from the bigs, right? I mean, all of the airplane makers basically had a very similar message. What did Aircap have to say this week? Yeah, I mean, the big news for for Aircap was at the beginning of the month, the deal with GCAS closed. So, you know, post the the deal with GCAS, Aircap is now the the largest aircraft lessor in the world. Uh, in a big way. Uh, and so they walked through some of the details on that and, and probably the other big news. And we saw this with, uh, with Air Lease, who reported uh, last week was um, uh, things are getting better uh, in, in aviation. And if you look at uh, you know, the, the quality of payments, uh, what they're getting in terms of the receivables, uh, the aircraft being placed, uh, it's just more evidence that we're seeing 
uh, a recovery in uh, global aviation markets. Uh, and we should point out, right? I mean, GCAS is General Electric, um, you know, capital uh, that obviously was a very, very important part of um, yeah. Uh, the so General I mean, Electric G, business, yeah, right? So G, G, yeah, GE Capital Aviation Services was a big part of uh, their financing portfolio. Uh, and, and obviously now with AirCap, and we're going to talk about GE uh, in just a moment because it was tectonic news and, and sad news if, if, you, if you look at it, right? Uh, you know, it's breaking up into three uh, units, aviation, healthcare, uh, and energy, but obviously each of those piece parts get easier to be absorbed by somebody else. Sash, um, let me uh, get, your, get your sense. Uh, Hensold uh, reported, uh, very important European electro defense electronics maker. And, and then, of course, Kinetic, one of the world's most uh, important uh, technology uh, companies, the old Dara that reconstituted itself as a as a private company and and now sort of getting its feet back under it, um, and and also rising COVID rates. Right, I mean the Netherlands are locking down. We're looking at a potentially very grim uh, fourth wave. Cases are increasing in the United States. So, Richard, I'm going to put you on the spot in a minute about whether or not your your bullish forecast remains as bullish as 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 it's been. Um, walk us through the earnings picture. And walk us through what the COVID picture means and what it may mean for travel uh, at, a, at a very time when we've been sort of thinking like, hey, we're back, uh, transatlantic travel is back, right? And it might not be back as well as we would like it to be. Yeah, okay. I mean, first of all, uh, on earnings, um, uh, you know, the, the two European companies that reported this week that were, uh, you know, uh, important to us were both defense companies. Uh, Hensolt, clearly the German defense electronics champion. This is the old um, uh, AEG uh, business or Dastard Defense Electronics, Airbus Defense Electronics. It's been through a lot of different incarnations, but it's now a standalone business. Um, it IPO'd uh, in uh, 2020, which was pretty impressive. It was between two waves of COVID and they did a pretty good job of getting that one away. And since then, 25% has been sold to the German government, 25% to Leonardo, uh, and the remaining uh, 50% is owned predominantly by uh, equity uh, holders, but also um, still a, a small rump portion of uh, private equity. What was important, I think, about these results, um, Hensolt is just winning orders at an astonishing rate at the moment. Um, they had, an, you know, near two and a half billion order for the uh, Eurofighter Defense Electronics and uh, uh, AISA radar upgrade in the first half of this year. And in the third quarter, bigger um, orders for um, uh, E-scan radars for ballistic missile defense for Germany, but also for the upgrade of the Frigate 124 class for the German Navy. The challenge now for Hensold is turning this huge backlog, three, nearly four years of backlog cover, turning that into revenue growth. And the revenue growth is happening slower because most of these are programs that build up progressively to mid-decade. And while that happens, actually, earnings growth ain't that exciting because uh, you know these are development programs early on and you just don't make a great deal of money out of a development program. It's when it turns to production that things start to get quite, uh, quite attractive again. So um, order intake very good, sales ticking up, but the uh, earnings still pretty slow. And there's another sort of interesting issue about Hensold, which is that it's a, it's a very German business. And, and the uh, German defense ministry, German ministries, pay pretty much everything in the fourth quarter. You invoice in the fourth quarter, you get paid in the fourth quarter. That's good for your Christmas bank balance, 
but it does mean that your Q3 in particular tends to look incredibly bare by comparison. So Hensolt will probably make 60%, 60% of all its money in Q4. Um, uh, and that means that, you know, we go through the first three quarters, you know, hanging on, as long as management is confident they can invoice, they can uh, book all the work they've done for the year, then yeah, they're probably going to get their numbers. But you just don't get the comfort you do from more diversified uh, defence companies in Europe, you know, VA Systems, Tarlis, Saab, for example, which book a greater proportion of their uh, revenues and, and, and profits in a fairly steady pace all through the year. Kinetic is a different story again. Kinetic's um, testing, evaluation, technology business, uh, which is predominantly UK-Australian, uh, but also has quite a, a significant US business, is performing incredibly strongly. Sales up in double digits, margins comfortably in double digits. Their global products business, which is predominantly US business, had a glitch in the third quarter. They've got one particular um, uh, contract, which they have, you know, for, I think, good commercial reasons, um, uh, said that they won't uh, be clear about, let alone the customer, although it's very apparent that it's a, a US customer, where problems with the supplier, problems with the supplier's ability to uh, actually deliver um, the, you know, what they were contracted to, caused them to have a, a significant problem in terms of uh, timing and in terms of costs. They took a 15 million charge. That's not the end of the world. Um, but it's very interesting because Kinetic is moving from being a test and evaluation business that just um, uh, you know, does a lot of very, very small, uh, fairly low risk uh, service contracts to being a business that's starting to do more um, uh, large prime contracts. And as they do so, the risk profile goes up and we saw one of those go wrong. I think the attractive thing is that management seem to have learned a lot of lessons from that. And you've got to, you've got to learn lessons from that sort of thing. Uh, but now what they've got to do is prove in the whole of the, their second half that they can actually now recover uh, the global products, uh, revenues and margins. And um, what about, um, just if I can follow up, and what do what's your COVID travel prognosis at the moment? Look, I always have a very, very different prognosis to, to any of you guys, because I'm, I'm sitting uh, typically on an island just off from Europe. I mean, you know, the island I'm on is either the worst bit of Europe or, you know, I mean, it's always an outlier, whether geographically or, or in terms of uh, pandemic dynamics. And what's happening at the moment, I mean, the UK is coming off a pretty high peak. Was that a fourth wave? You can call it that if you like. Interestingly, it was a peak in terms of cases, but not in terms of hospitalization uh, or deaths, thankfully. Um, and Europe, which has been at a very, very low rate of cases in the last three, four months or so, has been turning up very, very rapidly in the last, uh, in the last three, four weeks or so. Uh, the problems have been deepest in, or greatest, in German-speaking Europe. For some reason, there's a very interesting Financial Times article German-speaking Europe has got the biggest problems with vaccine hesitancy, and uh, that's where the um, uh, you know that's where the COVID is turning up very fast. As you said, Netherlands going back into lockdown. Other parts of Europe are going into lockdown in all but name. Parts of Austria, for example. Now Austria, they're saying if you haven't been vaccinated, then you are you know, you're gated. You you have to stay stay in your homes. That's going to be an interesting issue in terms of civil liberties, uh, but. You know, it may well be that Austria goes into complete lockdown pretty soon. And Germany, 
probably the only thing stopping the Germans from getting into lockdown is the fact that they don't have a government at the moment, uh, because um, the uh, negotiations on the next coalition have not come through. But it, it does feel very, very different, uh, difficult. And so G European air transport, which has been a big, um, uh, it's been very, very strong outperformer in the last month or so. It's uh, gone up from being 30% down uh, compared to 2019 to being 20% down right. relative to 2019, which is, you know, the best, the strongest performance of the lot. I think there is a risk now that that's, that takes back again because we start to see travel restrictions again. And at some stage, if COVID really does, uh, you know, pick up in continental Europe again, to, to the level at which it seems to be, the risk is that other countries just will stop taking European flights. Uh, and that might just um, put the kibosh on international flights a bit. So I would say that, you know, the next three, four weeks are going to be very, very interesting in that regard. You know, if you'd asked me a week ago, I would not have felt as pessimistic as I do now. Um, I, I'm sorry uh, to ask you one more uh, question because we're going a little bit of a longer round with you, but you mentioned Germany. Obviously, uh, Olaf Scholz won. Uh, Angela Merkel is getting ready to retire as chancellor after 16 years in the job. Um, but there are defense, there are there are negotiations that are going on about what the new government is going to look like. And uh, I was talking to a German friend who was very pessimistic about the outlook for the budget. Did Hensold provide any uh, guidance or clarification on what the German defense spending scene is going to look like, even though most Germans actually feel defense spending is too low uh, for what the nation has to do in its uh, st stature and standing uh, in Europe. At the same time, there's also a sense that they may not be investing as much in defense as they should. I think the Germans haven't been uh, investing as much in defense as they should for, um, you know, 30 years, uh, certainly 20 years. Um, uh, you know, in fact, German defense spending has been picking up very strongly in the last six years or so. I always say people who, who think the Germans are not spending enough really need to worry because if the Germans ever got to 2% of GDP, their defense budget would be the same size as the UK and France combined. And at that stage, they call the tune uh, on defense spending and, and defense priorities in Europe. <laughs> and I think that will make for really interesting uh, change political dynamics. But you're absolutely right. At the moment, the, um, the coalition negotiations between uh, Olaf Scholz's uh, SPD party, the uh, Free Democrats, who are actually a, a, a pretty right-wing party, uh, although they are supposedly liberals, right. and the Green Party, uh, are they're not stalled, but they're pretty close. Interestingly, one of the areas where they are clearly stalled is on defence. It's not on defence spending. The Greens are actually pretty hawkish on defence, uh, and particularly very hawkish on Russia and China, which you know we would think would be a positive. Uh, where they are very hawkish, or very sorry, where they're very negative though, is on uh, nuclear weapons, and specifically uh, whether Germany should buy uh, new aircraft to carry U.S. nuclear weapons as part of the NATO role. I think it's, you know, what we're going to see is that the Tornado aircraft, which are the current carriers of the nuclear weapons, get retired and there's no replacement because that's the easiest right. way to appease uh, the Greens in, in the negotiations. But Hensel were pretty positive about German defence spending. Rheinmetall the week before were very positive about it. I think the overall budget and Germany's engagement in European defence is actually better than people make out. But they will be very, very, particularly the Greens, very focused on 
uh, the issue of nuclear. And we should also point out, right, I mean, a lot of tensions, uh, given where uh, uh, Russia is in massing forces on the Ukraine border, certainly uh, alarming uh, folks here in Washington, as as in every uh, capital. Richard, I want to go to you. You're very bullish about what uh, the outlook for air travel is is going to be. We're looking at cases going up in the United States, as we heard cases are going up uh, in Europe uh, as well. What's your sense on this and what the travel picture looks like, right? Because everybody is going to be convening, for example, uh, in Dubai uh, as uh, this uh, program is taped for an air show. Yeah, you know, I'm sort of sticking with my relatively bullish outlook. I mean, this gets heavily into politics, but it seems to me that we're entering the sort of pandemic management phase rather than the major crisis, oh my God, this is going to kill us uh, phase. And what are the characteristics, you know, like everybody, we're just prisoners of the epidemiologists and what they're telling us here. But it seems to me that this, from what I'm reading, that this sort of phase is far more manageable. That doesn't mean that there are not major issues and there are certainly arguments for occasionally locking down, but you have to be mindful of the broader economy. You have to not overreact and you have to, well, not be like China with a zero tolerance policy. You're not going to get, that is not possible. What you can get to is a clear apportionment of risks. You know, basically, if you don't get vaccinated, uh, Singapore's announcement this week, you're going to have to pay for your treatment. Have a nice day. Uh, and you've got an awful lot of the risk accruing to people, as you mentioned before, uh, in, in Germany and elsewhere, who are not vaccinated. Okay, it's the same in the U.S. That's kind of on them. Uh, And then, of course, you've got the arrival, finally, of pills that are an effective post-infection therapeutic uh, formula. That's hugely important because that, of course, brings us closer to a disease model where you don't die. Uh, You know, you might have an awful week or two, but this pill keeps you from dying 90 percent of the time. So that combination of vaccinations for those people who get it, smart enough to get it, in my view, uh, coupled with that post-infection therapeutic drug, I think that makes this manageable. I just don't think that the mindset of zero tolerance and we must lock down is going to be terribly productive. And assuming that policymakers have that assumption too, then yes, things open up. And uh, again, I'm, I'm looking forward to a strong, strong first quarter. I've booked a couple of flights internationally in the coming months. And, uh, you know, I, I have a feeling that the numbers are, well, maybe we'll, they'll even be as fantastic as uh, November 8th when we had our first day of you know opening up to the world. I'd like to see more of that. And there's absolutely nothing about the uptick in certain parts, but by no means in the majority of Europe that, that that's concerning. But again, it looks localized, it looks manageable, and uh, I, I just don't think it's going to be, uh, it's going to be, have a huge impingement on numbers. Uh, and here's to not dying, which is, uh, which is a positive thing. Um, Ron, let me come back around to you. I mean, any, any change in, in your uh, forecast and B of A's forecast on what travel looks like going forward or COVID? No, we haven't changed that. I mean, it's, it's, I think Richard's exactly right. I mean, it's the, the transition of the pandemic from a pandemic to something manageable endemic, right? Maybe if I'm using the right endemic words. Um, and our view has been, as you know, and hasn't hey, changed. Ron, Ron yep. a, lot, a lot of mic noise, just uh, FYI. Okay, Go oh. to try, try it again with a little bit less. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. So um, how about now? Is that better? Yeah, much better, yes. 
okay, sorry, I started managing this while driving. Okay, so, uh, so one, two, three. Uh, so yeah, our, our forecast uh, really hasn't changed. Um, you know, I'm on board with you know, what Richard said. I mean, it's really the transition from a pandemic to something more manageable endemic. Um, and our, our forecast is uh, we get back to 2019 global air traffic uh, sometime in 2023. That, that really hasn't changed. Uh, we're, we're seeing domestic markets obviously pick up, some international markets pick up, but uh, we're still, you know, 2023 for the world to get back to where it was uh, back in, in 2019. Uh, let's shift to the topic of General Electric because, uh, Ron, we've got you for about another uh, 10 minutes, but I'm going to have uh, Richard uh, start us off, right? I mean, we had that conversation uh, last week that a GE Heritage uh, management team that's at Boeing, you know, what, what might be a next step uh, for the company it was a purely speculative conversation that, you know, a breakup might be likely because of this sense of uh, the investments not being made, uh, the change is not as abrupt, and then and this might become a breakup uh, story. Uh, and roughly 24 hours after we finished taping that program, we saw General Electric announce uh, its, its plans to uh, effectively break the company up, right? I mean, we have the GCAS unit that's already been sold. We'll have aviation, healthcare, uh, and energy. This makes it much easier for these pieces as independent companies to be absorbed uh, into other entities. Indeed, I would imagine there are banking conversations that presaged uh, the uh, decision to break these up, right? I mean, there was, there was clearly uh, may have been some interest there for, for other people to pick this up. Uh, and so you may want to erect a tombstone over a great American uh, company. Uh, on the other hand, um, and, and I should point out that Richard wrote a great piece in Forbes uh, on, on this uh, as well. Uh, Richard, start us off on the conversation, what this GE breakup means. Uh, Ron, want to get your views and then sash yours, because it, it does have uh, reverberations that go beyond merely just, you know, the sentiment and the, you know, this this great kind of foundational company, right? There are going to be reverberations to this. Take it away, Richard. Yeah, thanks, Fargo. And uh, you know, if you rewind to last week, I uh, was I sort of shot from the hip and said, "What are the chances of this being a Boeing story too? Thirty percent." And then twenty four hours later, you know, I'd raise it to fifty percent. I could be persuaded to raise it to sixty. Um, this just seems well. First of all, conglomerates aren't in vogue. As a matter of fact, today. Johnson & Johnson announced that it's breaking up into two units. Conglomerates just aren't in vogue. Investors think they can do better than a corporate HQ. Now, Boeing, not a conglomerate, of course, but isn't it kind of, sort of? I mean, how much mutual reinforcement is there between their business units? There certainly hasn't been that much in recent years, although I, I think from a counter-cyclicality standpoint, you can certainly make an argument. So I, I don't really know which way to go on no breakup or breakup. Maybe not, because I like the idea of critical mass in aerospace. But look, this is these are GE people, and their playbook in recent years has been a combination of deep cuts and M&A. That's what they do. And unlocking value. And their market capitalization is around half of what its peak was back in March 2019. This would seem to be something they're thinking about. And uh, oh, by the way, it also explains why they've been doing really nothing to what you call manage the company. I mean, it's, it's sort of bizarre that you haven't really heard much from corporate about what they're going to do to, well, reinstate that culture of engineering, technical excellence, what they're going to do to get back their losing market share against Airbus, what they're doing to, you know, well, deal with the very difficult program execution problems that BDS faces. None of this is an issue. I, I think there's a really strong chance here that behind the scenes, they're contemplating 
what the future might bring. Uh, and, and, and again, I should point out this is speculation on our part, and the company has not made any comment one way or another on whether you know what. And you know, aside from saying that, hey, we continue to do the blocking and tackling, and considering new designs for the future and the investment necessary to keep Boeing as a competitive entity, right? That's so, exactly right. That's very true. Um, uh, although I should I should say that unlocking value uh, ultimately is the biggest cliche, and the, in my word, the 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 really like a you know, caricaturish buzzword for, for value destruction, uh, ultimately for every big enterprise. I mean, it, it just, you know, everybody wants to pull some rabbit out of the hat as opposed to doing the great blocking and tackling that, you know, results in uh, a successful uh, growing enterprise and, and franchise. Ron, you and I, you know, we're prone to our late night conversations and we're talking a little bit about Garmin, about, hey, here's this company that's just blocking and tackling its way to become a, becoming a $40 billion uh, company. You know, talk to us a little bit about the General Electric news uh, and, and what it means for our ecosystem because it is very important to our ecosystem frankly, or has been, maybe not as much going forward, but it has been. Yeah, so I mean, a couple points. One, uh, to those who follow GE, I don't think this was a big surprise. Um, two, uh, you have a, a management team there that doesn't have a long legacy at the company. So they might not have the, the legacy affinity to keep it all together as one thing. Uh, three, if you look at uh, other industrial companies that have gone down a similar path, United Technologies was was one of them, right? When they uh, spun off uh, both uh, Otis and Carrier, uh, there was always head scratching going on. You know, why is a company that makes jet engines and, and aerodynamic subsystems making escalators, elevators, and HVAC systems? Um, it that uh, really did create a lot of value. Um, you know, those you get into a situation where the different end units can trade in different market groups and be assigned different multiples because different investors and different investor uh, groups think about valuation in different ways. Um, so I, I think from that standpoint, it's, it's not all that much of a surprise. Now to the, the bigger picture, you know, one question is, can GE aviation be independent? Um, as we all know, engine development is, uh, uh takes a big investment, investment over, over time. Um, so, you know, I, I think you'll start to see at some point, it's too soon now, right? Because the transaction, um, as stated, doesn't close for a couple of years, but will, will GEA aviation stay independent? Will it, um, you know, be merged or taken out by another company? Um, you know, we'll wait and see. I think any, any one of us could come up with a short list of, of companies that, um, uh, that uh, GE Aviation um, could fit into quite well. Um, so I, th I think that's you know, what people are thinking about. But ultimately, from an investor point of view, this, this kind of happens now in, at slow speed. It's not going to happen overnight. They're complicated transactions. There's all kinds of tax implications and tax jurisdictions and so on and so forth. There's a lot of details that have to be worked through. Um, so, it's, so it's something we'll watch. Uh, you know, I, I mean, and we, we have seen real conglomerates. I know that there's this sense of talking about General Electric as a conglomerate, but everything was really an outgrowth of the electrical, the motors, the turbine, um, the complex gear work that they did. And one was just a natural outgrowth of the other, right? Resulting in, you know, jet engine designs, Britain's jet, engines, but, jet but, engine but, designs brought to the United States to be produced in the United but States. But Vago, I would, I would add this point. I think going into the global financial crisis, GE was a financial company. 
right? I mean, that's right, right. because it, of GCAS, it had become NGE Capital had become uh, absolutely a financial company, right? And that's that was, I think, probably um, you know, in my humble opinion, a big turning point for the company when they made this pivot in a bigger way away from just industrials, but they became a, a financial powerhouse, and the the global financial crisis. Um, really, really impacted them in ways that if they were just making stuff, it was was much much deeper wound than it would have right. been for like it was for a United Technologies or a Honeywell or whoever who who weren't financial machines. Um, I, I should also point out, right? Kaiser was a shipyard, and now it, it remains right, with with a health plan, and now the health plan is what survives, and it's no longer a, a ship a shipbuilder. Um, you've got three more minutes, and I'm gonna I'm gonna double shot you and ask you about uh, the survey uh, your team and Aviation Week worked on uh, an incredible survey uh, uh, looking at 900 uh, companies around the world. And the conclusion was they, they want Boeing to develop a new middle market airliner. Talk to us a little bit about uh, the survey. Uh, what does it mean? Um, and then we can, you know, take it, take it from there and you can get on to your next meeting. Yeah, sure. I mean, to our little nitty group here, I mean, it's no, no big surprise, right? You had, uh, we, we uh, surveyed over 900 participants uh, and of those, uh, over 300 were airlines, and then we could parse them out by region and function and so on and so forth. So if you just look at the, the airline group, uh, airlines are saying, yeah, they would like a bigger, longer range, more capable narrow body from Boeing. Uh, 80% across the board, across regions. That's not just North America talking. That's not just Europe talking or Asia. Uh, it's cross regions. Um, they did say, however, um, they're willing to wait some for new technology propulsion. Um, if you kind of fall in my camp, that means you, know, you, you, you know, I don't think we're going to see electric propulsion or hydrogen on, on large commercial airplanes for another 50 years. So clearly that's not going to happen. Uh, and then the next question becomes for Boeing, um, ultimately, all right, if you're going to try to do this, you're going to try to do it in a reasonable period of time. How are you going to do it? And you you probably have to raise capital some way or another. And that's that's that that's one of the conclusions. Another interesting point on the survey was we asked, you know, were the issues with the Max and the issues with the seven eight seven today, in terms of quality uh, and otherwise, are they going to impact your decision? And just over half the airline said, yeah, actually that's a factor when we think about. Uh, buying airplanes. We're not blind to the fact of what happened with the MAX and what's going on currently with the 787. So that's another consideration, just you know, the broader implications for the brand. I mean, I know this is very simplistic, but let me just ask you this. If, if what we're talking about is a latter-day 757, isn't it easier to just resuscitate the 757? Um, yeah, I think, I think in some ways, yes. However, um, I think on a very fundamental level, the tools aren't around anymore. A, B, seven seven five seven was designed in a day and age when fabrication of airplanes was very different. Um, there was a lot of built-up components, a lot of fastening, a lot of stuff going on. Where uh, you know, in a more modern realm, you would design an airplane for fabrication differently. But right. you know, what what are you looking at? Is a modern analog to a seven five seven maybe right. a little more capable? Yeah, hundred percent. And I think well, that's what I, they're I, saying. And I meant. And I meant, right, use it as the core, right? You would have to put new engines in it. You would have to redesign it. There's no reason to make empanages as complex, you know, in as complex a manner and, you know, 
all kinds of fasteners in all the wrong places kind of thing, right? But yeah, exactly. Um, and any Dubai Air Show thoughts before you part? Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things you want to keep an eye on in, in Dubai, I mean, there's been a lot of speculation around that will be the launch uh, of the uh, 777X freighter. Kind of what I've heard through the grapevine is it's going to be some sort of derivative of the 8X, maybe a stretched 8X or something like that. We'll see. Um, but you'll you know, likely, I think, have a, uh, an official launch of that at the show. Uh, and then there's been some noise in the market around uh, Boeing uh, announcing some orders of some 737 Maxes uh, in, in India uh, to a startup airline. Um, I'm certain you know, Airbus will have their, uh, their, their stuff to announce as well. But you know, probably in just terms of you know, program launches, it'll be that. And then something that sort of flew under the radar a week ago was Embraer uh, uh, shared with the world uh, four um, uh, con concepts for future aircraft based on different propulsion technologies. Uh, and it was, I think, their view of possible ways that the world could go as it moves to a more environmentally friendly form of aviation. Um, so I would imagine um, there'll be some discussion about that at the show, too. Uh, Ron, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And uh, have, a, have a great day and a great week. And we'll see you again next week. Thanks a lot. Yeah, always a pleasure to be here, Vago. Thanks. Sash, why don't you uh, give us your se sense on what uh, the, the GE news means? And then let's let's talk about Airline, you know, the, the uh, Ron's uh, study, as well as uh, some of your expectations on, on Dubai. And let's, let's take it that way. And then, Richard, we can come to you and then go back to, to a defense conversation as well. Go ahead, Sash. Yeah, okay. Um, well, let's start. GE, um, and this is, I realize, heresy to some of your listeners, but I don't think GE has been anything like as well managed as its reputation has suggested for 15 to 20 years. Um, it went into the financial crisis, a financial crisis, but actually the GE mantra of cut and improve has been a, you know, we've seen how well this works at Boeing, but actually we're seeing how well it works at GE as well as an aviation business. The, the, some of the biggest problems with the 777X have been the GE9X engine, the GE's uh, engineering culture, their ability to produce complex engines uh, at a, you know, to time, to cost, has been damaged by, you know, GE management. Um, I am very struck by the degree to which once GE is broken up, GE Aviation looks much more like Rolls-Royce than I feel at all comfortable with. Yeah, it's bigger. Yeah, it's got a, a, a narrow-body franchise, fantastic, with CFM, uh, which Rolls-Royce has not got. But GE is going to have to be defending 50%-plus market position. Uh, but with all of the problems in terms of capital allocation that Rolls-Royce has got. And generally, you only defend that sort of market position by spending a lot of dollars, which comes straight out of your shareholders' pockets. So the idea that you can spin businesses off, release some form of value, and I'm, I share your skepticism about that, um, and then actually, it's a good business beyond that. I don't buy that. I think GE is incredibly vulnerable because uh, it's going to need to spend uh, money on its own, and otherwise, it's going to lose share, particularly to Raytheon Technologies, which is a conglomerate, absolutely, but it's a defense and aerospace conglomerate, and uh, they've been spending the right money on new engines. Final point, and let's, come, let's circle back to Boeing again. I think uh, it's entirely possible that at the, end, at the end of all of this, we're going to see GE Aviation and Boeing merge. Um, why not? Uh, you know, 
GE Aviation, after all, is pretty much the monopoly supp supplier to Boeing anyway. From Boeing's point of view, and, and I'm talking about the Boeing um, that Richard has uh, come up with, i.e. Boeing commercial aircraft, because they sold the defense business off. So this is super hypothesis now. Um, it's highly speculative, but Boeing can't afford to run competitions for engines anymore. Boeing also needs a business with a good aftermarket to actually give it the cash to develop new engines. And the way you do that is merging with GE Aviation. I think we're going to see the creation of, or the recreation of United Aircraft again, but this time Pratt & Whitney gets left out and GE comes in, in uh, instead. And um, you know, from uh, Airbus's point of view, they're going to have to consider how to respond to that. But if we have aircraft being developed in the 2030s that are much more integrated than they have been uh, previously, and where it isn't just that the engine hangs off the wing, and there's a very clear dividing line between the engine OEM and the airframer, but actually you're embedding the engines in the airframe. Um, the argument for separating uh, airframers and uh, uh, engine companies just goes out of whichever windows are left in a composite airframe, and we might still merge them again. And uh, your expectations at uh, Dubai? Um, look, Dubai has always been a wide body show because it's wide body country. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we see any wide orders, but I agree um, with Ron. I think we'll see uh, 777X freighter launch. I actually think Airbus may well um, uh, announce the first orders for the A350 freighter as well. I think that's probably the, the most in interesting rabbit they can pull out of the hat. Uh, so, yeah, I'll watch with interest, but it's not going to be, it's not going to have the orders of, of yesteryear when Emirates would, would be a slam dunk for a hundred of whichever was the newest wide body. Um, Richard, your your take on that, right? I mean, you talked a little bit about the you talked a little bit about the Boeing angle of the story, but a little bit less on the General Electric angle and its uh, impacts. And would would love to get your thoughts also on middle market as well as Dubai. Yeah, you know, first and foremost, uh, we're right to have this conversation because GE Aviation is not going to remain alone. Nature abhors a niche company in this business, and uh, it's just inevitable they're going to combine with someone. That vertical integration outcome that Sash talks about, I certainly think it's possible. I mean, 90% of Boeing's jetliner propulsion spend is GE anyway, so why not just you know, take it as as it is and run with it. Um, and of course, there is the big problem. If Boeing really does split itself up, you know, uh, what do you do with Boeing commercial? Well, one possibility is to make it bigger. And that might solve some of the problem of what to do with the proverbial Remainco. Um, however, I still think the base case scenario is that GE Aviation winds up with Honeywell. There's just so much synergies there, and that would be a very effective counterweight to RTX as one of the world's biggest mezzanine suppliers. And of course, they've tried it. Uh, it's just that it didn't work out for a variety of reasons, perhaps just you know relating to the rest of the stuff that GE held but no longer will hold starting around 2024. So I think that that's probably the more likely outcome, but you certainly can't rule the other one out with Boeing. And uh, what about the middle market and your expectations in Dubai? Yeah, I mean, they certainly did a great job over at uh, Bank of America with that survey. I think everyone wants Boeing to do this because, you know, I mean, we've been railing against A321neo and how it's seizing market share and doing such a great job and, and how Boeing needs to do something. 
from a customer standpoint, of course, the survey was heavily customer focused. They don't want to hand monopoly pricing power to the people building the A321neo, especially XLR. So it's very much in the interest of both financiers and airlines to have that competitive force on the market. And if Boeing chooses to abnegate its any kind of leadership or even even showing up, that's on them. So I think everyone knows this. They did a really good job defining the product. I sure hope they do it. I, you know, you just, at some point over the past few years, we just all become accustomed to throwing up our hands and saying, please, Boeing, prove us wrong, do this thing. And uh, I guess the entire market is saying that as well. You know, as for Dubai, um, I think my, my colleagues have done a great job talking. It's not going to be Emirates showing up with 100 or something. You know, the first news out of the Dubai Air Show really underscores the results of uh, Ron's uh, and, and Bank of America's survey. Several hundred more A321neo orders uh, on top of the thousands they've got already. And Boeing just not competitive in that market really underscores the tremendous need for a new Boeing jet in that segment. The middle market is where all the commercial activity is, and it's going to continue to be, and Boeing simply needs to do something here. As the military side, you know, the big question is, will they be allowed to execute on the F-35 and sustainment contract associated with the Abraham Accords? And of course, there's a lot of uncertainty of that because of possible China sourcing, because of because of all sorts of tech transfer issues and, and whatever else. There's 20 something billion dollars of defense contracts in the balance here. I'd be very surprised if you didn't hear talk about a European fighter contract first as a kind of gap filler, second as a way of putting pressure on the U.S. to allow the execution of that F-35 deal. The most likely player, of course, would be um, Dassault with the Rafale sale, if not a sale, then at least a, a discussion of some sort that was very loud. And it might well be a sale because, you know, frankly, the UAE is always like dual sourcing. And there's absolutely nothing about the international relations of the Gulf states that would change that. So right. an F-35 Rafale future for the UAE Air Force, I think, is actually kind of a base case scenario at this point. I, and uh, I should point out, right, I mean, you know, throughout this process, uh, you know, there was always for decades an expectation that the United Arab Emirates would buy the Rafale eventually, having been a very successful Mirage operator. And yet that transaction hasn't hasn't happened yet. Right. I mean, so there is this sense that that might be overdue. Sash, do you think that that's uh, a likely uh, or a plausible outcome? And more broadly, the question would be that every time in my last visits, and unfortunately, we're not there in person at the show, the United Arab Emirates has moved very sharply toward the Chinese uh, in terms of being a partner, um, technological development, investment wise, and also as an antidote to the United States, where um, certainly uh, the government has viewed American uh, overbearing arms export regulations. And indeed, uh, this administration is looking at making human rights a more significant factor, uh, right, where we might become almost a German-like contributor. You know, Sash, get your sense on the Rafal uh, element, but also get your sense on what the arms export future for the United States looks like. And, and Richard would like to get your sense as well, because there are folks who point out that there are a lot of transactions, particularly towards the Gulf, that are not moving as quickly as they should, and it's mo not moving as quickly as it should because uh, the new American arms export policy could actually be very human rights focused, which makes that somewhat problematic for even close allies and partners of us. Sash? Yeah, okay. Um, 
I, I, you know, and there's so many questions in there that we could we could spend 15 minutes each going into. But let's say, first of all, Rafael, I think that's a, you know Richard's raised a really really good point there, and um, it's amazing quite what an, an effect uh, a Middle Eastern country buying 24 Rafales has in terms of. Uh, forcing the the U.S. State Department to sort of loosen up on exports by 36, and it, you know you've almost guaranteed it. So um, the UAE has has had a a love hate love hate hate relationship with Rafale pretty much since Dasso uh, bought the aircraft uh, to, to the drawing board in the first place. And their objection to Rafale has always been it's a great aircraft, but it's chronically underpowered for the UAE requirements. Um, and, you know, it's, I, I think it's been the biggest mistake for the French. They never, ever upgraded the M88 engine properly. Um, if the UAE was prepared to fund a, a major M88 upgrade, and it would have to be a big one, you know, you, the engine probably needs 15% more thrust, which for an engine that is, you know, arguably in the last, uh, you know, in the last 40% of its um, uh, development life, that's a, that's a big ask. But if the UAE was prepared to fund that, then I think, uh, France could deliver a really attractive upgraded uh, Rafale. And I think that would send a very clear signal to uh, the US that there are alternatives to the F-35. Clearly, nowhere near as stealthy, but on the other hand, they don't have the same uh, conditions and probably get a better weapons package as well. And that's something that I think would be very attractive uh, uh, for, for the UAE. My only concern about it happening at this show, Dubai show, is that the Dubai show is typically a civil show because the UAE Air Force is actually run out of uh, Abu Dhabi. And therefore, it, it has historically been the IDEX show, which is the defence show for the right. UAE, where the big defence things have tended to happen. But, you know, that's not to say that things won't be different this year because everything's been thrown up in the air in terms of time scale, you know, timelines uh, because of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, the fact that the F-35 uh, deal doesn't, you know, has not occurred, I think plays very, very strongly into France's hands, possibly even into, into Eurofighter. You know, it's entirely possible there might be a, um, another order for, um, or, you know, orders for Eurofighter coming out of that. And that would be uh, very, very much welcomed in other, other European capitals. Richard, your, your thoughts on where we're going to end up on arms export and, and how it plays into certainly the Middle East, but also around the world. And I should point out, you wrote a piece in Foreign Policy that said the United, that the U.S. military isn't ready to confront uh, China, which has unfortunately been, as everybody on this program knows, a, a tragic concern uh, of mine. And the, and the minute that the Chinese figure that out, your deterrent ability sort of goes up in smoke. But, uh, you know, give us your sense on where we end up on arms uh, export, uh, because... This has been a problematic element and nations in the region have gone to the Chinese. And there are those who say that, you know, the, the capitals in the region have leaned even further toward the farther toward the Chinese, um, move more closer to the Chinese. And then this this notion that we're not ready for Chinese prime time. Go ahead. Yeah, there, there's a couple of issues here. Thanks for asking. You know, one question I get uh, from clients, as I'm sure uh, Sash and Ron do from investors is, to what extent is defense spending cyclical? Everyone talks about defense spending cycles. And my point, uh, my primary point is that you, you can read too much into the term cyclicality. We had a counterinsurgency cycle, which frankly bought us tens of billions of dollars of stuff that's 
utterly, utterly, completely useless for a great power. You know, I mean, you, you show up with the uh, older model Blackhawks, turboprop transports and turboprop attack aircraft, body armor, MRAPs, all those other stuff in the Pacific. And you might just well as well sink it, make a coral reef. It's useless. What's going on now is a completely different cycle. So it's not so much a cycle inevitably followed by a downturn. It's more like a, an upcycle followed by a completely different upcycle, one that pays for, you know, NG, you know, NGAD for the Air Force, for example, or conceivably future vertical lift for the Army, or certainly B-21 and God knows what else. The actual tools is a great power needs because from the military standpoint, it didn't really get any of that over the last couple of decades. What it got was a handful of, uh, well, F-22s, uh, it got a jack of all trades, F-35, you know, it, it didn't do particularly well on the shipbuilding front, nothing in terms of big, big ticket items conformed to what you typically see in a strong defense upcycle, far from it. Uh, the people who benefited most were the, well, the Army and the Marines just with ground equipment. That was it. So I, it was a way of saying that this is going to continue and it's going to favor the big ticket items. Now, from the standpoint of China, you know, I, I think you can overstate the extent they've been able to make major inroads. Um, you know, 20 years ago, their big client for combat aircraft was Pakistan. Yeah, it's still Pakistan. Uh, drones are an area of concern, though. And of course, 5G right. is an area of concern. These are all areas of concern. It's not the same as, you know, oh, wow, everyone is buying Chinese missile systems or Chinese combat aircraft or anything like that. It's something you have to watch. And certainly from the standpoint of, well, data leakage and whatever else, it, you need to pay a great deal of attention to it, it you know, especially the 5G aspect. And, and they are. Policymakers are. Does that mean they're going to displace us as primary arms providers? When the Middle East really wants the kind of strategic relationship with China that they would get from the US or France with an arms deal with them. I'm very hard pressed to think of anybody, really. Um, are you concerned that the arms export policy though changes that dynamic in a meaningful fashion? You know, it might. I mean, that, that, that's certainly an issue, but I don't think it changes it towards China. I think it changes it towards Europe. The news broke today that Senator Menendez opposes the F-16 deal for Turkey. And uh, obviously that raises the question of, do the Turks go to Europe? Do they go to Russia? I just don't think China is on the short list of people they anyone wants to have a strategic relationship with. There's just not that much to be gained and quite a lot to be lost. Now, one aspect of the diminishment, if you will, of U.S. Uh, military export deals might have something to do with the massive pumping up of expectations in the Trump years. There was so much that was announced, but was never going to actually happen. Um, you know, that's probably not the case with the 20 something billion dollar Abraham Accord deal with uh, the UAE. But you had the announcement of, you know, several types of attack helicopter for the Philippines. It's just an example of one of many. There was so much going on by way of announcements that were just put out there with a reasonable chance of actually being turned into a firm contract. Now, to what extent are things changing now? Watch this space. It doesn't seem like it. it doesn't seem like the second coming of the Carter administration, but it's definitely something that bears watching. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, hope you guys have uh, a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Vago. Always a pleasure. Yeah, great to be on, Vago. Thank you.
And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.